People of the Lord, I bring you warm greetings from the saints in Greensboro, North Carolina, where I'm from and am a minister there at Providence OPC. And I thank you for your warm welcome of me. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, especially to the elders, for welcoming me to the pulpit today. I bring you greetings from the Orthodox Presbyterian churches in southern Jersey as well. And I am glad to uh, make known my connection to the URC, which is through my wife, Melissa. She grew up in your sister church, Trinity, in St. Catharines, Ontario. And I'm very glad. I feel quite at home with you in the URC. And you may know well that the URC and the OPC have many connections together, and we're very glad for our bonds in the Lord. So it's a joy to be with you. We will come to the preaching of the word in Colossians chapter 3, but first I'd like to read to you another portion of God's word which will help us in understanding our heavenly calling, Revelation chapter 21. So you can turn there first with me, and then we'll turn back to Colossians. It's a great privilege to hear the word of God read. You may remember in Nehemiah chapter 8 that the people of God for at least six hours in the day had the word read and explained to them. So we won't take quite that long today. But let's enjoy this vision of the last days. Revelation 21. I'll read the whole chapter. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, 
And at the gates, twelve angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth foursquare, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper. And the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, a chalcedony, the fourth, an emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, a topaz, the tenth, a chrysoprasus, the eleventh, a jacinth, and the twelfth, an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. Now turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. For context, I'll read to you a bit of chapter 2, starting at verse 13 and through to Colossians 3, 5. Our text will be Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Again, starting at Colossians 2, verse 13. And you being dead in your sins in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding the head 
from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Let's pray together. Father, we ask your blessing upon the word which we have read, and now we will hear preached. Bless your servant, a vessel of clay. Show through my weakness the exceeding power of your grace and strength, and take all of our eyes and fix them upon Christ, our Savior in heaven, in whom we pray. Amen. I begin with a question for the children among us. I see a few. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus now? You could answer it in three ways. One is that saying he's everywhere. It's true. Christ, according to his divine nature, is everywhere present. You could also say he's in my heart. And if indeed you, even little children, have believed in Christ, that's where he is, according to his divine power and the presence of his Holy Spirit. But there's an answer that our text gives. It's perhaps the answer in your heart. Jesus is in heaven. That is, according to his divine nature, where he's everywhere, according, yes, to his divine power, in which he's in heaven in a way he is no place else. God's power is on display in heaven in a marvelous way. But Christ is also there in heaven in his human body and soul. In his human nature, he is there. That's what it means when we say Christ ascended. He went up into heaven. But another question, not just for the children now, where is that heaven to which Christ went? Well, in Acts chapter 1, when we read of the ascension, we see that he went up and a cloud took him from their sight. But we're not to think then that Christ is sitting behind a cloud or that he's sitting on the moon or he's on the stars or some faraway planet. Christ has gone much farther than that. He passed through the heavens and he's been exalted above them, the author of Hebrews tells us. Paul says in Ephesians that he ascended far above all the heavens He's above all the heavens you can see 
with your eyes or even with a telescope. He's above the heaven of the air. He's above the heaven of the stars. He's in what Paul calls the third heaven or what Solomon calls the heaven of heavens. The heavens that the Bible speaks of often and yet no man in this life has yet seen. It's the place where the angels live. It's the place where God has his throne and he dwells in power and glory. It's where Christ, the son of man, as we read in, as we read in Daniel chapter seven, came with the clouds to the ancient of days. And now he sits at his right hand. It's to this great heaven that the Apostle Paul directs our eyes this morning. We'll consider his teaching in three simple points and then we'll follow him directly and logically from that teaching to its application to our lives in two points. So first, his teaching. Paul's first point is simple. It's that you're dead. You have died. Verse three, for ye are dead. Now, I start here. He first speaks of being risen with Christ, but this presumes a death that has already happened. What is this death? Well, he explains it in the context we read in Colossians 2.20. He says, you are dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world. There are the basic teachings of this sinful world, the earthly philosophy, the sin that holds the whole world captive and once held you. But it's changed. Things are different. You're dead to that. The image if you look back at verse 13 of chapter 2, which we read, is switched. You're dead and you were dead in sins. Now you're quickened or alive with Christ. But the images go together. Your new man in Christ has been made alive. But for that to happen, your old man had to die. His guilt is nailed to the cross. As we read in verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances to us. He nailed that to the cross And in verse 15, your old man's masters, the demons, they were robbed. The principalities and powers were spoiled by Christ's death. When Jesus died, by faith now, we have received in his death the power to die ourselves. And that death that all believers have died is a death to earth and to all its sins. That's the first point. The second is what he begins with, that you've been raised. You've died and now you have been raised all the way to heaven. Verse one, if ye then be risen with Christ, the if asks the question and the assumption is, if indeed you are a true believer, this is what has happened. You have a new life. You are, as Paul says elsewhere, a new creation. The old is gone, and behold, the new is come. You are like that vision in Ezekiel 37. Once a pile of dry bones put together by the power of God with new life breathed into you by the Holy Spirit. You have been born again, as Christ says in John 3. But being raised here is not just about having new life on earth and not just a life of spiritual life here upon this earth. It's a heavenly life. Christ, verse one, sitteth on the right hand of God. 
And you in Christ do the same. So in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul puts it this way. In verse 6, And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You, by faith, are there with Christ in heaven. And that's why in verse 2 you're to seek the things above. Because you are above. You've been raised. Now this raised, if you read the context, is clearly not just raised to new life, but raised all the way to heaven. This word raised includes ascended. It's viewing in terms of Christ the whole 40 days from his resurrection to his ascension as one great act of exaltation which you have participated in by faith. And that's why in verse 3, Paul says that your life is hid with Christ in God. It's hid or hidden far above in a place no one on earth can see, except, of course, by faith, which gives us eyes to see heavenly things. Paul is not saying that Christians don't live on earth. Here you are. But he is saying that the power The purpose and the goal even of your earthly life is not earthly. That's how it used to be, but all is different now. Those who are in Christ, spiritually speaking now, draw every breath and take every step from heaven and for heaven. To put it better, from the Christ who is in heaven and for the Christ who is in heaven And that's why in verse 4, Christ is called our life. He is your very life. As Paul says elsewhere, for me to live is Christ. We see that life, which is hidden by faith. We possess it now in principle, though not in its fullness. And the proof of that is even the most heavenly of Christians in this age is constantly pulled back to earth. By the sin that easily besets us. That won't be so though for long. And that brings us right to Paul's third point of teaching. You have died and you have been raised. But you will be raised again to heaven with Christ. He's coming back. Look at verse 4. When Christ who is our life shall appear. Paul speaks of this appearance in most wonderful terms. In 1 Thessalonians chapter I'll read to you verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then Paul adds, wherefore comfort one another with these words, it truly is a comforting doctrine. I want you to notice in that doctrine, though, where Paul says we will meet Christ. We'll be caught up in the clouds. Do you remember from Acts 1? The clouds that took Christ. Those same clouds will be where we meet him. And it's a reminder of what our text at the least implies, if not outright says, what this meeting with Christ will be like, or better, where it is. When Christ who is our life, verse 4, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Not on earth, temporarily here for the judgment, hovering, so to speak, above the world and watching him cleanse it. 
with his fire of judgment, but then being taken up to his right hand. To God's right hand, that is. Back to the place which he said to his disciples he had prepared for him, for them. Now remind you of those most comforting words. Our Savior spoke to his disciples as they were sad that he was leaving them. There in the upper room in John 14, he said, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Christ has gone to heaven so that he would bring us back. This may not be a doctrine that you reflect on as you ought, but it is a biblical doctrine. And it also is a reformed doctrine. I can read to you right from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 52. What comfort is it to you that Christ shall come to judge the living and the dead? That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same one who before offered himself for me to the judgment of God and removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall take me with all his chosen ones to himself in heavenly joy and glory. That is the final end of every Christian. You will be raised again to heaven with Christ, not just by faith in your soul, but in your body too. So to sum up what Paul's saying, with Christ you've died to the earth, With Christ, you've been raised to heaven, and with Christ, you will be raised to heaven again. Now we come to Paul's own application of these doctrines. And in it, his logic is very simple. If you've died to the earth, which is the opposite of heaven, if Christ now lives in heaven, and in Christ, by faith, you live in heaven with him, and if your future life will be lived in heaven more fully than it is now, If in all these ways you belong to heaven, the practical conclusion is unavoidable. You must live accordingly. Paul says it in two ways, both positive and negative. You're to seek the things that are above, and you are not to seek the things that are on earth. We'll start with the negative, to flee the earth. As he says in verse 2, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. As we read in verse 5, we're to mortify, that is put to death, our members, our body parts that are upon this earth. Not speaking strictly of the flesh, which itself is not sinful, but which is because of the corruption of our hearts, an instrument for sin. And we're to put to death the sin that dwells in it and that overvalues the things of this earth. Christ put it this way. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you, cut it off and throw it away. Now. This is a difficult duty. I want to encourage you in it. 
with motivations that flow right from what Paul has taught us in this text. There are three realities about this heaven where Christ sits that ought to drive you to this duty. Realities that perhaps you don't meditate on as you should, but I want you to. First, the physical reality. Heaven is a real physical place created by God. And the physical reality of it is contained all in this one word Paul uses, above. It is above this earth and its lower heavens in every way. Think about how that's true in magnitude and size. The third heaven is above the first heaven of the air, the second heaven of the stars. If you have any conception of how great that second heaven is, imagine now the third heaven surrounding that entire second heaven and how unbelievably large that place is. Christ was not exaggerating when he said that there are many rooms in his father's house. There are enough there to fit the whole host of Abraham's children, which, as you know, will be, as we'll see on that last day, as numerous as the stars of heaven. Compare that holy city to Pompton Plains. Compare it even to New York City. Both are like little anthills in comparison to the Jerusalem that is above. Think about the beauty of these places. Here, golden jewels are rare, they, and riches come and go. Even the glory of our lower heavens dims each night. But there, as we read in Revelation 21, the walls are made of jasper. The streets are made of gold. It shines so brightly there with the glory of God and of the Lamb that there's no need for sun or moon. In comparison, our earth is no more glorious than a dull copper coin. Think about the inhabitants of this earth. Here, all creatures, man included, are small, short-lived, subject to dirt, filth, smell, pain, disease, sorrow, and ultimately death, which is coming for us all, whether through coronavirus or something else. But there in heaven dwell an innumerable company of angels, awesome living creatures with six wings and full of eyes. Today there are surrounding the throne a mighty host of the spirits of just men made perfect. There is God, the judge of all. There is Jesus, the mediator of the New Testament. And after the trumpet shall sound, our lowly bodies will be made incorruptible to dwell in that place. And as we read, there'll be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore there. For the former things will have passed away. Compare that beauty and the inhabitants there to all the miserable little dwellers upon this earth. We're just like Isaiah says. We're grasshoppers. We're dust on the scales. A drop from a bucket. Nothing and less than nothing Think also under this physical reality of the location. Where are we? Well, volcanoes remind us of something. Just below our feet is a continual boiling of fire and brimstone. Today, right now, not far from you, billions 
of souls are being punished, tormented forever without relief for their sins. But this heaven to which Paul points us is as far from that as possible. It is beyond this earth, beyond the sky, beyond the stars and all the planets. This life you live right now is, relatively speaking, lived every moment but an inch from hell. And don't you see then through all these physical realities, how foolish and how sad it is to set your affections on things below, on things of earth. They are nothing, physically speaking, compared to the things above. That's not even to mention, then second, the spiritual reality that earth and all its creatures are not just subject to physical limitations, but now they groan not only under weakness, but under sin, man's sin. Most of our race lives in continual hatred of God and of each other. And even we, the righteous, battle hard with indwelling sin and cry out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? So why then would you set your mind on such a sin-stained battlefield? And prefer it to the peace and the joy and perfection of heaven. Think third of the reality of salvation. This is what Paul zeroes in on in our text. He says in verse 3, you have died. You've died to the rudiments of this world. You've died to the lies in which you live. You've died to the sin which held you captive. And you then with Paul, if indeed with him you have been saved, you count even the greatest things of this earth as loss and dung compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ the world. Through Christ, the world has been crucified to you and you to the world. And that means to turn back to the world and to love it more than heaven is to turn your back on all God's work of grace. To set your affections on things of earth is to prefer damnation to salvation. And so I exhort you to flee a love of earthly things. And I bring a warning here that comes because of these realities. A warning to those who prefer the earth to heaven. Now there are two ways this can happen. One is if earth is your heaven. If you prefer earth's pleasures. If your greatest delight is in riches, strength, work, learning, marriage, family, food, friends, sports, vacation, on and on. If these for you are the sum of the good life. And if God, religion, church, and piety are only good insofar as they help you enjoy those other things more. If your life is summed up in the phrase, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, then my friends, you have condemned yourself because tomorrow you will die. And there will be no earthly pleasure in your death. But you can also have earth as your heaven by more explicitly preferring earth's sins. 
not only the sin I mentioned of valuing earthly things as good in their own selves and not for the end of glorifying God, but actually preferring evil things, preferring rebellion to obedience, preferring fornication to the marriage bed, preferring gluttony and drunkenness, or as we read in Colossians 2, a false asceticism, handle not, taste not, touch not, to a godly moderation. Things like Paul mentions in verse 5, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate, inordinate affection. These things are earthly in the strictly sinful sense. And be warned, as we heard, that on account of them, the wrath of God is coming. But I need to speak, too, to those among you who call on the name of Christ, but have an earthliness that's more subtle than that, but no less dangerous. That's for those who say their desire is for heaven, but your heaven is strangely similar to earth. What do you look for in heaven? Is it a place to play extended golf games in perfect weather? A place to have coffee and cake with all your friends and family? A place to perfect your handyman skills or your book learning in uninterrupted leisure? Instead of what the Bible actually says you will be doing in heaven, casting with the elders your crowns before the throne, before that great sea of crystal, and crying out with all the saints and all the living creatures, worthy art thou, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Let me put it another way. If your heaven looks more like what you did last week, Monday through Saturday, than what you are doing right now on the Lord's day, worshiping the Lord, then I fear you don't actually know what heaven is. And you won't actually be going there. And in fact, you don't actually want to. Let me put it simply. If earth and not heaven is your preference, if it's your portion now, then earth will be your portion at the end as well. Do you remember Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? They were earthly men who opposed God's heavenly minister, Moses. And do you remember their judgment? The earth opened up under their feet and swallowed all them and theirs, and so it will be for all who love the earth. It will be your home forever. My friends, heed these warnings and flee earthly mindedness. But second, positively, turn away, turning away from earth, you ought to seek the things that are above. The things that are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Paul is calling us together with all the rest of Scripture to make it your aim to have a single-minded devotion on one thing, and that is heaven. All your mind, all your thoughts, all your affections, always set on things that are above 
so that you will be able to say in the words of Psalm 27, verse 4, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Or as we heard in our call to worship, how lovely are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. My soul longeth, yea, fainteth. You fail with longing for the courts of God. In this way, Paul is calling us to be like Abraham. As we read in Hebrews chapter 11, he was seeking this same country, not an earthly country, though he was sojourning to Canaan, but he was desiring a better country that is a heavenly country. The city God prepared for him, the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And in this way, my friends, you're to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, who said it very plainly, not to lay up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but instead to lay up treasure for yourselves in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Seek ye first, Christ said, the kingdom of God, that is the kingdom of heaven, and let all other things be secondary. Now this duty also is difficult, just as the negative of fleeing and putting to death the earthly things in us. But I want to motivate you again in this regard. Remember what our text has said. That Christ went to this heaven. He came from there. And after dying for our sins, he went back to his home. What benefit is this to you? It's the fact that if you are in Christ, your life is hidden with him. He is, verse 4, your very life. And so, verse 1, just as he rose and ascended into heaven, so you have risen and ascended into heaven. He belongs to heaven, so do you. It's true now in principle, in your affections, in your mind and heart. They're set on those things above that you can't see yet with your eyes, but you see as real by faith. But soon, they'll be yours in every way. So second, remember that Christ will take you to heaven He'll do it at your death. We already sang from Psalm 23 of the shepherd who will lead us all the way to God's house and will dwell there forever. Hear the same comfort from Psalm 73 where it says in verse 24, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. That's the comfort of the Christian If you have the same faith as that thief on the cross who said, Lord, remember me. Then you have the same hope that Christ gave him today on your deathbed. You will be with me in paradise. When you, by perseverance, have finished the race, 
then Christ's promise to the church in Laodicea will be yours. This is Revelation 3, verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. You'll rule with Christ and your death will be a victory. But there's more than that. That promise of Christ won't simply be fulfilled at your death. It'll be fulfilled in its fullness on the last day. As Paul says in verse 4, when he appears, you'll appear too. That is to say, the power of a godly life that's at work in you now will be realized in its fullness. As John says, when we see him, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. What you see by faith, you'll see with your eyes. It'll overwhelm all that is earthly in you and make you perfectly ready for eternal life in heaven. I don't want you to be mistaken, my friends, on this point. Your final destination is not earth. Christians have no need to worry that after death, when your blessed souls have been observing the face of God and Christ in the third heaven, that once your soul is reunited with your body, you'll be exiled back to earth. Just as Christ was not resurrected to stick around, he will not return to stay here. He's promised something much better that after we meet him in the air, he will take us back to the place that he's prepared for us to the father's house in the third heaven. Now, make no mistake, the fires of judgment will restore this earth. All that sin has ruined will be made right. And as Christ said, the meek will inherit the earth. Perhaps we'll visit it. That's what the angels do now. But you know, the Bible doesn't say very much regarding that. It doesn't give us really any earthly vision of eternal life. And that's because it's pointing us the same direction as Paul does. Not to earth, but to heaven. Even the new earth, free as it will be from sin and corruption, at best, is only the beginning, the very smallest part of your inheritance. The chief, most precious part is heaven. And why must that be, ultimately? It's because of this third and my final motivation I give you. It's because of who is there. The one whom we'll meet. The one whom our soul has loved the Christ. Remember what the Bible says of him, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that great shepherd of the sheep, the fairest among 10,000, the most handsome of the sons of men, the one who loved us And gave himself for us. My friends, put aside all the other blessings you know will be in heaven. The angels. The worship. The resurrected bodies. The streets of gold. If all we had was Christ. It would be more than enough for 10,000 lifetimes 
of joyful praise. And to think that having Christ through him, we have his God and Father as our own. And we have Christ and God by the Holy Spirit. The triune God is the portion of believers. The God whose plan in saving sinners is to make us to feast on the abundance of his house. And to give us to drink from the river of his delights. The blessed triune God himself is the chief blessedness of heaven. And his presence there is the reason why you can be sure that all the things above where Christ is are worthy of your desire and delight. Set your affections on them now. And one day they will all be yours. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice at the vision you have given us of the third heaven, the heaven of heavens, where you dwell with an innumerable company of angels, with the spirits of just men made perfect, with Christ the mediator. Lord, we have seen a glimpse this morning, and our souls are glad to think of the inheritance that you have kept for us there. We rejoice, God, with joy inexpressible and full of glory. For what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, such are the great blessings you have prepared for the righteous, for those who love you, for those who long for the appearing of Christ. Lord, we thank you that he shall appear, and we bless you that we will appear with him in glory. The life we live now by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Faith will be turned to sight and you will transform our lowly bodies in the likeness of his glorious body. And we will reign and rule with him at your right hand forevermore. God, what an awesome hope you have given to such lowly, weak, and even sinful creatures as we are. Lord, having this vision of heavenly glory, we confess our sin of earthliness. We have loved earthly things, food and drink and pleasure, even, Lord, the best things of this life, our families and our marriages. Lord, we've loved them more than we ought. And we've not loved them rightly because we've not loved them for your sake and for heaven's sake. Oh, Lord, forgive us for like cattle fixing our eyes and our heads upon this earth. We lament, God, how much grace we have lost, how many opportunities for growth in Christ we have squandered because we have our minds and affections set on earth. Forgive us, Lord. And we beg you, Lord, that if any here today have their affections set on earth and not on heaven, that you would, through the warnings of your word, powerfully snatch them from the fire that is just below our feet 
and that will receive all the earthly minded on the last day. Oh God, please, please direct all our hearts, the hearts of ourselves, the hearts of our children. And we beg you the hearts of many others whom you have yet to call in this area and to the ends of the earth. We pray that you would bring a mighty company of transformed sinners who have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus, who die to sin and are raised to everlasting life, that you, for Christ's sake, would bring many sons to glory, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Lord, please, in all these ways, fix our eyes, our hearts, our minds on things that are above, where Christ sits at your right hand. We pray this trusting in him alone. Amen.